Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. It was an afternoon. I must have been about 20 years old. And I, we was playing a big soccer game at Highbury Fields and this guy kicked me and I thought he kicked me too hard. So I just went and hit him as hard as I could. And he ran to his car and he got out a huge machete. And I was getting chased down this park by this guy with a machete. I'm very aware that this story sounds so crazy that... That's just what happened. One yeah. wouldn't believe it. But I mean, it's, it's, just, it's completely true. And I, I, was, I was running away and my friend Byron had gotten his car and I was so scared that I was going to get caught by this guy that I jumped on the hood of my friend's car, like a kind of flyer on the, on the front of the windscreen as he drove off. And it's not that story itself that is the crazy part. It was the fact that when I went home, I told my mum, I told my stepdads, my friends came around and we just laughed. We thought it was hilarious that that had happened. To me now, that is just like, what on earth? Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. We always appreciate hearing from listeners of Labyrinths. We've poured so much time and energy into the podcast that it really makes our day when one of you reaches out to let us know that you found our work valuable. Last spring, we got a message from a listener that stood out. His name was Lee, and he wrote in to tell us about his unusual life. When we read that email, we knew we wanted to have him on the show. My name is Lee Turnbull. I'm originally from Scotland originally, but grew up in London. I've uh, been in the States for 12 years now. Why did you reach out to me? It's something I've never done before. You, you have to just take my word for that. I'm a huge fan of Sam Harris, and I saw that he had been on your podcast, on your the Fungus Effect series. But mm-hmm. I mean, kudos to you guys. That was just, it was absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, and I'm, I, I mean that sincerely. Like you both did such a good job. You opened yourselves up so much and it was great. I really loved oh, it. Thank you. And I'd listened to that and... Obviously, I had been aware of who you were, but having listened to that whole season, I didn't put two and two together. <laughs> I was just engrossed in the, in the season. It didn't click. And my wife listens. She loves her true crime podcasts. And she said, that's Amanda Knox. She played me one. It was a podcast that you had guested on. And I listened to it. And I was so taken aback by your perspective on things now. I'm, I'm sure you guys have listened to things in the past and, and things are just clicking. It resonates with you, really, truly resonates with you. The ladies that were interviewing you, I could hear a surprise in their voice when you spoke of empathetic nature to, to just to your circumstance and just everything that had happened. Mm-hmm. So we was on our way to the grocery store and I'm, I'm just nodding my head in the car going, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. Hmm. I was driving down to LA a few days later and I was like, let me listen to another podcast of theirs. And I just clicked on a random one and it was you and Christopher debating, can you remake yourself? Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. This is Who's Right, our series of weekly debates. I was on the 405 coming from LA to to Long Beach and I've never wanted to interject (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a conversation as much in my life. Truly, truly, truly. I actually, I pulled off the 405 early off Long Beach Boulevard. 
I pulled into this parking lot and I just wrote to you guys. I've never done this in my life. And with no want or desire for anything like this to happen, just Mm -hmm. it was on my mind. It was something I was passionate about. And I've not listened back to that podcast since, but one thing sticks out to me. And it was something you said, Amanda, you said to Christopher, you said he'd made a really good point. And you had said, I understand what you're saying, but I suppose like the thing that I'm trying to pinpoint is that I sure, make lots of different choices now than I would have when I was 20 years old. But do I feel like I'm a fundamentally different person as a result of that? And intuitively, I don't feel like my consciousness is in some way radically different. I see how the younger version of myself is just a younger version of myself, right? Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, wow, who's that other person that I used to be, right? And I completely understood what you meant, but I'm the complete opposite to that. I mean, everything is nuanced, right? I've got maybe a similar sense of humor than I did when I was in my 20s, but ethically and as a human being, I I am a complete opposite person, a a complete opposite person to that I used to be. If it wasn't my story and I'd heard it somewhere else, I find it incredibly fascinating because it is fascinating because I've done this complete turnaround and i often ask myself if certain circumstances hadn't have happened would i still be this way hmm. if i would have gone to for jail for a, a prolonged amount of time which really could have and should have happened would i be the person i am now i just think it's a great philosophical question and an interesting story i'm often asked if i think that i would be the same person today if i hadn't been to prison I've wondered that myself many times over the years since I was released. So the question of who we'd be if our lives had unfolded differently resonates deeply with me. Knowing that Lee has faced similar crossroads, we wanted to hear his story. So, born in Scotland, my parents were very young, 18, 19 years old, moved to London at that age. We were in a homeless shelter uh, while my parents tried to get on the council house list. Council houses, council properties, council estates in England is similar to the American projects, right? Mm. Um, So we got a place in a council estate, the Marquis Estate in North London, when I was a baby. And life was normal. My dad was a window cleaner, my mum didn't work, lived in a rough and ready council estate, but I wasn't a troublesome kid, just liked to play football out in the streets and play runouts and just ride my bike as kind of any kid would. And then At the age of 14, 15, things really went awry with my parents. My dad became very violent. For a few years, it was a regular occurrence of police battering down the door. Wow. I would be jumping out my uh, first floor window to try and run away. Wow. But it was normal. It just was what it was, right? This was life. Um, Do you have any idea why that shift happened when you were 14 or 15? I don't know. I don't really speak to my dad at all really anymore it could have been an evolving thing that had been happening and i was just not privy to it because of my age at the time right but it just seemed to get really bad it was really bad i grew up around a bunch of lads i grew up in a concrete jungle right i didn't care much for school i wasn't a a violent kid at that point i was just a cheeky lad that really annoyed teachers i can't really remember doing a day's homework in my life I would uh, skip school just to go and play football with my friends in the streets. And Mm -hmm. that was the existence. That's that's what it was. It's just what it was. I left school at 15 and I needed to work. So I ended up working in a a pawn shop, a pawn 
I'll say it in an American accent because my wife said to me, it sounds like I'm saying the word P-A-W-N. Oh, pawn. In yeah. My accent. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not saying that porn. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a, how was that? Yeah, that was great. Uh, uh, in a porn cassette shop. Um, and I was essentially a con man for two, three years. So I sold blank video cassettes to people for hundreds and hundreds of pounds. DVDs weren't a thing then. Internet wasn't a thing then. How did you get into that as a profession? So a friend of mine, uh, Jamie, had been working there for years. His dad's new people that run the shops. It's a real underground world. It's the, the kind of deepest parts of Soho and it's not a very safe area or it wasn't then anyway and um, I needed some cash in hand and they wanted someone that could kind of sell an imaginary product and I was able to work in the shop and people would come in and ask for grotesque things they would ask for anything from your regular porn to um, child molestation and things like that and oh wow and we didn't carry any of these titles we just had blank video cassettes I had this catalogue that I typed up at my mum's. It was completely made up of all these different genres, made up titles, and people would look through the catalogue and point at that. And I would just make up what this video was. I had the gift of the gab. You know, I was a cheeky London lad that could talk his way into and out of anything. And I'd say to the punters, look, are you police? Because I don't want to get done by you. And I would say to him, look, I think the police are around today. So normally these videos go for 300 pounds each. So you know what? I'm going to do you two for 500 pounds. Just make sure when you come back, you don't tell my boss and make them think they're getting this yeah. great deal. And I just send it, sell them these blank video cassettes. And then of course they can't do anything about it. And here's the crazy thing, Amanda. Sometimes they would come back saying they were blank and I could re-rip them off again. People were so desperate for what they wanted. I'd phone my friend Jamie, pretended that he was my supplier and say, another one of these videos is blank. We're going to come around to your house and we're going to get you. You're ripping off my customers. I'd hang up that phone. I'd say to the customer, look, I'm really sorry. We're going to take care of that. A guy just came in 20 minutes ago, a regular, and did an exchange. So I know this one's legit. This is normally 400 quid. Because of what you've went through, 150 pounds, we're good. And they would do it Wow. again and again because people really wanted their fix. I always justified myself by, oh, I'm ripping off perverts and I'm ripping off pedophiles. But all truth be told, now when I look back, I was ripping off it. People that just wanted a £20 video cassette of porn and I never felt bad for anyone or anything. And it was just me, me, me. How much money can I earn? How much money can I earn? When Lee started out working at the porn shop, he wasn't necessarily trying to hurt anyone. He was just trying to make money. But working there led Lee down a path that would eventually lead to violence. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast is only possible thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. I had this group of friends and all we would do is go out, drink and Every weekend, we would get into physical altercations with anyone and everyone. It was every week. Wow. 
Was there any kind of either psychological or emotional rationale to it? Or was it just mindless testosterone? Like, what was going on? It was a wee bit of both. Um, I was a product of my environment. Like, I never knew anybody growing up that went on to higher education. All my friends were bricklayers, carpenters, scaffolders, plumbers, uh, people that did a trade, left school at 16, did two maybe years A-levels, went into work. I never looked at anyone and thought, oh, he's smart, he's going to uni. Like That just didn't exist. The guys we looked up to were the guys that were the toughest, the guys mm. that were the hardest. That, that was the term we used, like someone that's hard, hard as nails. And if Billy, the older kid, super hard, it's like, I wanted to be super hard. And I remember thinking I was a wee bit smaller than all of my mates. I'm 5'7", some may say 5'6". And um, <laughs> all my mates were, you know, 6 foot, 5'10", but I was a small, hard kid. And I thought it was great that all my pals thought I was a nutter. And mm. all the girls from my area thought, oh, Lee, don't mess with Lee. He's a little crazy lad. I was talking to my wife last night. Something dawned on me. I remember the piece of advice my dad gave me. Pretty much the only piece of advice I remember him giving me. I don't want to say he didn't ever tell me to be kind, nice. I just don't remember that. But what I do remember is him saying, son, if you ever think anyone's going to hit you, hit him first. And I remember thinking that as a mantra, as just like, yeah, if someone gets in my face, I'm going to hit him first. And What's crazy about that part of my life is I don't look back on it and go, I'm obviously I'm embarrassed and ashamed and all of these things, but I never had another choice. People think you always had another choice and there was no weighing up whether something was right or wrong ever. And my head never hit my pillow at night going, what I just did to that guy was bad. It was a drug. It was this adrenaline. And there was no one around me with any sense of sensibility to reason these these abhorrent things. There's dozens of these stories, but one that springs to mind was just a guy at a bus stop that made, it's just terrible to say, but he may have just looked at me the wrong way. And he was mm. just a guy, just a guy, a nice fella with his girlfriends and just in the West End. And I, I hit him and he had blood all down his mouth and it was like a mustache. And I remember just laughing at him it's so abhorrent to say and I'm so embarrassed but this is just the truth yeah. um and it was like this all the time for years all the time wow so how did the shift happen what what happened that turned it around it's a huge culmination of things it's an evolution right there was no kind of light bulb come to Jesus moment of realizing everything you're doing is wrong it's a lot of luck. I put a lot of luck into everything in life. People you meet, the random choice you will make that day, the sliding doors effect. To understand how Lee's life turned around so dramatically, we have to first go back in time, back to before he dropped out of school. In an effort to stop me getting into trouble, my mum had put me in all these kind of after-school things, and none of them stuck, apart from there was this one place called the Anna Share Theatre in London. It was an after-school theatre program for blue-collar hmm. teens to kind of get them off the street. And um, there was people from all walks of life at this theatre, and every so often casting directors would come and watch the kids just do improvisations. I did it on Friday nights and Saturday afternoons every so often. And when, like, a TV show wanted a young Cockney London kid to steal a Rolex watch because these <laughs> were the kids they would cast. Right. I ended up being really lucky and getting like these roles and every so often in TV shows, 
But in the same breath, I was always doing what I was doing with my pals and just not caring about school. Funny story, I actually ended up getting a part in an ITV show called The Vice, where I played a rent boy in Soho. And they filmed outside my shop where <laughs> I worked selling tapes. Yeah. And it was while I was working selling tapes there. So it was like all these people on Soho Market and all the shops knew me as this lad that sold porn cassettes. And then the next week I was filming a TV show. But I wasn't friends with actors. I still never kind of uh, gravitated towards that world. You know, I went and did a job and then went back with my friends and di did my normal thing. But I think the slow involvement of like meeting different types of people uh, different pr uh, professionals, um, people that take a craft seriously, um, people just from different walks of life, that would definitely had that initial imprint on me. Um, mm. An ex-girlfriend of mine, it's still a dear friend, I met her by chance when I was 24, 25, and she was this animal behaviorist, and she was the most interesting person I'd ever met, and we really got along, and I ended up moving to Turkey with her. Wow. She worked at this dolphin therapy center for autistic kids. And I went with her and fallen in love. And again, it was just meeting someone that just was completely different and saw things a different way. And being taken out of my comfort zone and meeting new and interesting people was the slow, slow things that kind of evolved to the change. Eventually, when I moved to the States, I was doing a theater show. And the theater show came to the States. Even in this show, I was getting in trouble. You know, I did the show from like 25 to 28. And I was always the cheeky lads getting in trouble. But there was uh, big fight scenes in the show with real steel swords. It was Peter Pan. Um, so it was Lost Boys and the Pirates fighting. And Daryl, who played Captain Hook, Daryl Brockus, he was leaving the show and the show needed a new fight captain. So it was someone that was in charge of the fight choreography when the fight choreographer wasn't there and someone that rehearsed the fight scenes. And it was a, this sense of responsibility. And I remember as he was leaving, he had suggested that I be the fight captain. Doesn't sound like much, but all of a sudden, like I was seen as someone that could handle some sort of responsibility. Like I really took to it. I was like, oh, wow, you see me in this light? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be responsible. And actually, I'm going to take this really seriously. And I think now looking back, just giving like this small responsibility that meant the world to me, Hmm. really it did the world it really did the world i think these are the small ingredients out of your comfort zone meeting interesting people given small responsibilities all things that just they did just happen by luck and happenstance that slowly evolved to, to to make me who i am now and who are you now every day i have a pinch myself moment because i live in long beach california and i'm just this little shit from london <laughs> I have friends tell me they're very proud of me and that I worked hard for it. And I always stop them in their tracks. I'm like, I didn't work hard for it. People that work at a cash register six hours a day with a kid to feed, standing on their feet, like they work hard and they don't get the luck and the happenstance that I've had. I don't earn a lot of money, you mm -hmm. know, but my life is so rich. I feel like the world's poorest millionaire. Like I, <laughs> I, I just, I feel... I feel so rich that I can just go out and at least afford a latte and spend time with my wife. And and going back to your question, who I am now, I'm someone that's incredibly, I have so much empathy for people, not to the point that it's detrimental to my own well-being. It's just that I understand people's plights. I had a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago and he was telling me how mad he was at everyone wearing masks. You know, people 
they're in their cars by themselves and they're still wearing masks, people jogging. And he was so angered by people that have no effect on him. And I tried making him see it in the light that I see it. And I was like, these people don't want to be so fearful. Like imagine being in a car by yourself and having to wear a mask because you're that fearful of something. Like that sucks. Yeah. They don't want to be that fearful. So all I have for people is just this level of empathy that does it make sense? You know yeah, I mean? no, it absolutely makes sense. And that's who I am. Another major factor in Lee turning his life around was his exposure to the work and ideas of Sam Harris, someone Amanda and I also admire. 10 years ago, I'd just come across a video and I remember seeing him talk about the term critical thinking. I'd never heard the term critical thinking until I was 29. Never heard that term. Conceptually didn't understand what that was. And I remember just listening to this thing going, oh, I can question things in this nuanced fashion and nuanced way. And it was almost, I guess, analogous to how if someone goes to university and meets a professor that has this profound effect on them, maybe what I am as a coach to some young people now, I don't know. But it was seeing this guy on this screen talk and it was like listening to your podcast. Like, things just like resonated with me all of a sudden. And um, I was like, I get it. You know, oh, I understand that. I understand that. And as silly as it sounds, just listening to this one guy and watching this one guy had a huge impact. I've read all of his literature. I read his book, Lying. And for the last two, three years, I've made this commitment to, I try my best to never lie and never white lie. And mm-hmm. I've gotten into meditating from the beginning of the pandemic, as did you guys. I heard you guys mention yeah. that. And I'm now fascinated with, with the mind and consciousness and uh, from an interview I heard him do, I now practice philosophical stoicism and I try and see things in this light all the time. And if I'm stuck in traffic, it, it's no big deal because somebody could be having the worst day of their life. Well, what I loved is um, is that thoughts arise on their own. If you really think about it, it's not like you are making thoughts happen. Thoughts are happening yeah. to you. And as soon as you realize that you don't actually have to identify with your own thoughts, you are liberated in this incredible way. And I wonder if the major difference between you now and you then is simply the realization that whatever thought that arose is not necessarily you or something that you have to take action upon do you think that's the thing that's the fundamental difference that meta-awareness maybe to some degree but i I don't think that that was so instrumental in the the complete turnaround but that meta-awareness i love that term by the way is that your term uh i mean i know uh i like it i really like it's a term (laughs) okay (laughs) it resonates so that meta-awareness has definitely done so much for me for these last couple of years um, mm. since the beginning of the pandemic to, to understand that I don't need to be what arises. And if you would have said to me three years ago something about meditation, I think the masses don't understand what meditation is. I mm. think I often tell people now it's not just sitting in silence and not thinking, it's noticing the thoughts as you would notice a sound. And once you get there, it's just like, holy cow, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still practicing and 
it's a light bulb moment in my life. I still struggle when maybe I'm heightened or if, if I'm highly anxious or I'm angry or something. And yeah. I know what I need to do, but those thoughts just go, no, well, she said this. You know? Yeah, it's and like, so okay, I'm justified. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just the thought. But Heidi did just say that, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm still trying to get there. But um, I do believe that I had, even in those years, I always felt that I had something a bit different with my mind. I always felt, and I don't know if everyone thinks this though about themselves, if everyone thinks they're special, but special isn't the word. I, I can't think of the word. But even in my mid-20s, there was always this ability to critically think without understanding the concept of critically thinking. I remember when I first learned and read about philosophical stoicism, and it was something that actually resonated with me. And it was like, oh, I do these things anyway. So I'd already had that ability to somehow see things, for lack of a better term, glass half full kind of light. And I'm just lucky that I'm able to do that. I always had an ability to reason and rationale to my limited ability to, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I could figure things out. But you can only figure things out as far as your knowledge will allow you, you know. Right. But I do feel that I was lucky enough to be born with the mind that lets me do that. I think Christopher said this on a podcast recently with you guys. And he was speaking about the young male mind, you know, mm -hmm. up until the age of 25, 26. And I'm not privy to all the science on that, but I know enough to know that it's different. It, it's different at that age. And um I think a lot of it does attest to that and also just my surroundings at the time. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I mean, I even just want to pick your brain on that because I think a lot of people in the regular world, they, they either take two perspectives on this young men of this age group and inclination, impulsive, aggressive. They think they're either monsters and they're super judgmental and that they could never possibly change and they're just little psychopaths or they think they're people who are growing but they don't understand how it is they grow and i think it's super interesting that as someone who has grown into empathy and mindfulness like it's still really difficult for you to empathize even with your younger self, the person you used to be, who was incapable of that? Did someone never represent those values or ideas to you before? Do you think if you had ran across Sam Harris when you were 20, would your younger self have been able to absorb his thinking? Mm. It's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yeah. And it's such an interesting question. I don't know if I would have been 19 and went on a retreat somewhere and there was a Sam Harris and I had nowhere else to go and all of those small ripples matter in that ocean. But it's tough. We're so limited. Our minds are so limited. Being able to not comprehend the limited mind of a young man that he mm -hmm. doesn't have empathy and he doesn't have morals or ethics. It's like you have it now, so you want to believe that they had it then, but the mind is so vast. It's everything and it's nothing, right? Have you ever seen the show um, The First 48? I think I've heard of that, but r remind me, what is that? It's on A&E. It's the first 48 hours of a, of a, of a murder, and it's a uh. documentary show. But what I'm getting at is that at the end of the show, it's pretty much the majority of the time a young black guy in a rundown neighborhood that commits this murder. 
And every single time when they break down during the interview, I just, I see me. Hmm. I always see me. You know, we, we didn't have guns in the UK or anything, but someone has died. It's truly awful. You know, I don't even need to add that caveat. It's, it's awful and it has to be reper repercussions of a sort. But it's awful across the board because just these young people, not every single young person that commits an atrocity is always going to be fully a bad person. There is me out there. I think there's tons of them. And going back, I just, it wasn't an option. It didn't exist within my mind in, in those early 20s to weigh up a right or wrongness within mm. it all. It just was what it was. And it was, excuse my French, but it was just, fuck anyone that gets in my way. I'm, I'm just going, you know? Mm. I've done plenty of things that, you know, if someone would have hit their head on a curb a certain way on a sidewalk or, right. you know, you know People have gone to prison for a lot less than what I've done. Um, mm. And I, I, I don't really know where my thought's going there, but I'm extremely lucky. We all know that, that prison isn't the answer. The way prison is right now, it's not rehabilitating people. And I'm not an expert in this field, but I do truly believe like 100, 200 years from now, we're going to look back on the prison system. We're going to look back on how we treat animals for food, the way we look back on slavery now it's going to be that of like wait you locked people up and just and did what yeah and when they were <laughs> and when they were free you did what wait you didn't give them you didn't give them any help yeah wait and they couldn't get jobs like whoa what did you expect to happen to society and you the know? state murdered people like what <laughs> yeah wait, wait 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 you say you can't murder but then you murder them wait what you know it's <laughs> it's, it's it's crazy and i don't have the answer it's just it's sad across the board it's sad across the board when these young men do these things because if they just get past the age of 26 and meet good people <laughs> it's, it's I've, I've always said to to my wife we've got a name for children we've got a name for teenagers but after the age of 19 we call them adults and i'm like no from 19 to 26 we, there should be another category because you're in this adult body but you look back at yourself when you're 26 and how you thought of things and figured things out it's yeah. I was a moron. I was just a moron. When you look back at your younger self, you remember that person. Do you recognize that person? That is such a good question, and I've got such a funny anecdotal story. So I had all these phobic, kind of aggressive, you know, my views on the world were god-awful back then. Like what? Well, here's an example. Every so often, a thought will rise from nowhere that is Lee of 21 years old, and I'm like, holy cow, where did that come from? Huh. So this was a, quite a few years ago. I was in LA. I had a little scooter. Uh, I was walking dogs at the time. And I was going off to walk some some dogs. And there was this redhead lad walking across the street. And back then in days, if you were redheads, God, you've, you've, you've got the short straw. You got made fun of for all the really stupid reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you'd bully them a little bit. You'd send them to the shop to go and get your stuff. This kind of stuff we used to do. And this redhead lad was walking across the street. And he was dressed in a, 
I don't know, retro funky kind of way, people in Hollywood dress, but confident, cool, you know, living his life, smile on his face. But as I was on my bike, he's just walking past, the thought arose, look at this redhead trying to look cool. What an absolute idiot. That <laughs> came into my head and I went, whoa, where did that come from? Like, <laughs> I, I judged his look. It's exactly what I would have thought 10 years ago and I caught myself thinking it. And that happens every now and again. Huh. Where I'll, I'll I'll think of something, things I don't even want to repeat, but I catch myself in the moment going, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. But in terms of all the, like, the violent stuff and the non-empathetic stuff, I recognize it in the sense that I remember it and I remember what it felt and I remember that it felt like a drug, but I can't understand the non-care for people. I can't understand never thinking that I did something wrong. The only time I ever felt anything from a kind of a violent act was when I would feel fear. And every so often I would get into it with the wrong people. Sometimes things went really bad. At one point I actually fled the UK to Greece because I'd gotten into it with the wrong people. And what had happened had made the newspapers in England. Wow. And a friend of mine ended up in the ICU from being stabbed and I knew that the guys were looking for me and had been knocking on doors and these were real guys. And I remember that I was extremely fearful enough that I, had, I, I left the country, but that's the only feeling of anything I ever had was fear, but never that of remorse, never that of feeling bad, hmm. never that of being empathetic. Hmm. which is, is mind-blowing to me. Lee's life today looks vastly different from his life as a violent young man. He gave up acting years ago and instead works as a girls' soccer coach. I fell into coaching. I was working at a private Jewish high school in LA and they needed a soccer coach and a friend of a friend worked at the school and got me on board. I was very surprised early how much work these kids did. You know, like they was on the bus going to the soccer game and they were studying for tests and I'd never mm. seen anything like it in my life. Hmm. And it took a few years for me to understand, well, this is the American way in terms of work, which is a separate discussion. But I remember just trying to be a bit of a yang to that yin and, and just saying to them, enjoy this moment being on the bus, lads. In five, ten years, you're not going to remember that science exam on the Wednesday. What you're going to remember is playing soccer in a pouring rain and losing 10-0 and all going <laughs> fro frozen yoga after. Right? True. It's so um, true. <laughs> and I ended up building relationships with these boys at this high school. I'm still on the group text. Some of them are graduating UCLA now and they're going to do like computer work in Silicon Valley, which is crazy to me because they're still like the freshmen that I coached at high school. Um, and I'm still in contact and they tell me how much of an impact I had. So I just try and take that into my coaching, especially in the female soccer. It's so competitive down here in Southern California. There's so many middle-aged male coaches that just shout and scream at these girls and just always shouting. And I remember when I played sports, like, I know I made a mistake. You don't need to shout at me. And now right. you shout at me. I don't even want the ball again because I'm scared to make another mistake. Right. And I realized very early that coaching the soccer is the easy part, you know, that so I grew up playing the game and I'm British, it's engulfed in our culture. But I realized I was having this impact on these young people. So I made the venture to do that full time. And it's why I do what I do. I try to be a yin to the yang of what some of these kids are brought up to think and believe and 
try and give them different perspectives and just try and be as good as a person as I can to these young people. I, I, I'm not going to have kids of my own. So all the girls that I coach, they're my girls and I love them to bits. They mean more to me than they will ever know. Lee's coaching philosophy differs sharply from that competitive, aggressive coaching he saw around him in California. I think from my ex-girlfriend and learning kind of animal behavior through her, those things apply. There's a great book called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. Um, She's an animal behaviorist. And in the book, she speaks about how these animal behavioral techniques apply to humans and messy flatmates and your Hmm. boss at work who's not nice to you. And it's a great read. And it's I try and apply those things into my coaching. It's just a lot of positive reinforcement. When someone makes a mistake, that's when they need to be picked up. It's just what you should do in life, really. I'd like to say maybe the five, six years I've been coaching these girls, I've raised my voice five times, you know, out of anger. Like, kind of, we need to get something done here. It's just, it, it doesn't get anything done. Hmm. Um, I just try and treat them with a lot of respect and I ask for respect back and I try and be their equal. Yeah, They want to be heard. Adults aren't always right. I hate that saying, respect your elders. It's like, absolutely not. People have to earn respect. Just because someone's older than you, it doesn't mean that they now deserve your respect. Be a kind person, be mindful, and then you'll have all my respect. Yeah. I'm recently a parent, right? And of course, as a pregnant person for the first time, I'm reading anything and everything about like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And the the, the most impactful book that I read was something called um, Hunt, Gather, Parent. Basically, the author grew up in a Western society with the way that we bring up modern Western cultural, you know, whatever. Like we have these ways that we um, treat children. And she at a certain point woke up one morning and just like the immediate thought that she felt was I am dreading this day that as soon as my daughter wakes up, we're just going to be fighting and unable to connect with each other because she's this terrible twos daughter who's like out of control. And then she like did all of this research looking into, well, is this just miserable existence? This is how it feels to be a parent? Or is it a situation where we have a the wrong mindset when it comes to children? Maybe we shouldn't be trying to control them as much as we do in Western society. She said that in indigenous cultures, one of the ways that they deal with kids acting up is to give them more opportunities to be responsible. So if the kid is acting up, Instead of punishing them and isolating them, they say, we need you to take care of this thing. Basically, give them the opportunity to be more of an adult as opposed to thinking, oh, well, they are fundamentally irresponsible. So therefore, we can't trust them. Even more reason not to give them responsibility. And I wonder Mm. if that resonates with you, because I'm just trying to imagine like you're a coach now. You're dealing with a lot of young people who are at these like this weird moment of their lives when they're teenagers going into this weird stage of being not quite an adult, not quite a child. If you could coach yourself from back then, how would you do that? Yeah, I think it's kind of full circle there, what you said about responsibility. There was one girl on my team a few years ago that was a wee bit troublesome. And I made her the captain. And I was like, look, this is what I need from you now. She got fired up and she got angry at her teammates. It's like, I know you get angry at your teammates, but they look up to you. So maybe I was trying to like kind of coach her as to knowing how to play the game a little bit, you know? Um, And that 100% works. The telling off and the lambasting of of these young people, it doesn't do anything. Giving them responsibility, giving them trust. I mean, I'm not a parent, 
But I think you're right in what you said. As a culture, we're kind of now ingrained as to this is how we do it. There are different ways of doing it. Have you seen the movie Captain Fantastic? No. It sounds like some sort of superhero movie. It's not. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. You've got to watch it as a new parent. It's okay. about a, a guy that takes his family kind of out of the city life mm-hmm. and brings them up his own way, right? Mm. Um, how, how he thinks they should be brought up and teach them to hunt and to gather and to critically think. But they have to go back into city life for a funeral. And it's how this family kind of integrates with other cool. families and other kids. It's a really, really good movie. Oh, I'd um, love to I see cry, that. I cry every single time. Like, <laughs> it gets me so hard. So hard. But yeah, there's there's other ways to do the things. Sure. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> I, yeah. I love how like profound and simple that is. There are other ways yeah. to do the things. <laughs> yes. Like, come on, guys. There are just other yeah, ways. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. There are other ways to be. There are other ways to do the things. Like... Yeah. But people don't know that. I've always been against the grain. I had to leave the country at a few points when I was younger um, because I kind of had to. Um, but I went out and did random different things. I got jobs in bars in Greece and uh, I went and lived in the north of England with a friend and I went to Turkey with a Swedish girl and worked with dolphins. I mean, it was, <laughs> I put myself out there and did these random things. And again, these are things that definitely helped ripple that wave of my change. But we decided that you know, there's this cultural pressure that, you know, you've got to have kids and or you've got to go to college and you've got to get in this debt. And I often tell my girls, why not do the two-year community thing first, not get put in all that debt and you can play soccer because if they want to play soccer in college as well, right. so it's a really good opportunity to play for two years. And there's other ways to do the things. And me and my wife in 2016, we kind of gave up all of our jobs. We gave up our apartment and we got a one-way ticket to India and we went backpacking for six months. And we're doing the same in four weeks, actually. We're leaving for South America for a year. Amazing. Um, and we just got a one-way ticket to Peru and I'm spending every single penny I've got and we're budgeting $70 a day. So it's like $15,000 of mine. And when I come back, honestly, I don't have much to my name. There are girls that I coach that have more in their bank account than I do. But, you know, if I think too far ahead, I'll worry about that, sure. But I just want to do the things and do things differently. And I want to see the world. And that's what I'm, all, I'm always trying to say to the young people I work with. You can do these things. You know, you can do anything you want. You, you can take a gap year. You can... You can go to Thailand with your friends for six months and just wander around. You can do it. You can do anything you want. Anything you want. You don't have to transform yourself as dramatically as Lee to live an extraordinary life. Once you understand that you're not bound by social expectations, a lot of things suddenly become possible. It's never too late to reinvent yourself. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter at Amanda Knox at Man Under Bridge. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and check out KnoxRobinson.com, home to all our creative insanity. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us and Sophia Gates with additional editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp.
Amanda and I always appreciate hearing from listeners of Labyrinths. <laughs> you think that's funny, do you? Yeah. Are you talking? Yeah. What? Yeah. Last spring, we got a met. Last... Last spring, we got a message from a listener that stood out. <laughs> well, I guess this is why we don't record VO with her in the booth. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener-supported. This podcast is listener-supported. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson 